Hello, Campus Cronies, and welcome back to Campus Crime Chronicles. I'm your host, Nicole Turner, former college professor, current college administrator, but always a true crime addict. In every episode of this podcast, I take a deep dive into some sort of true crime that occurred on a school campus or a crime that's associated with a college or university in some way. For each episode, I rate the seriousness of the crime from 1 to 5 on my very own serious crime scale, with one being completely not serious, possibly even a little humorous from time to time, to 5 being very serious. This episode is rated a 5. On October 7, 1998, a teenager was riding his mountain bike in some fields just outside of Laramie, Wyoming, when he discovered what he thought was a scarecrow that had fallen off its post, or perhaps even some type of Halloween gag. A dummy lying on the ground, maybe? It was October, after all. But when the teen got closer, he realized it was a person, and the person was still alive, but barely breathing. It was 21-year-old Matthew Shepard, a University of Wyoming freshman, and he had been tortured and tied to a log fence with a rope. He had been there, left to die in the frigid cold temperatures for at least 18 hours before the teen discovered him. This is the story of one of the nation's most heinous and unprecedented anti-gay hate crimes. This episode is titled Murder and Laramie, Matthew's Story. So without further ado, let's get started. have heard of the popular play and HBO movie, The Laramie Project. If you're anything like me, you have definitely heard the title, but when it came out in the early 2000s, I'm almost too embarrassed to admit that I assumed, without looking too far into it, that it was a show about cowboy country and ranchers and prairie lands filled with, you know, antelope and buckhorns and buffaloes. Not something I was necessarily interested in at 18, 19 years old, which is how old I was when the film debuted. But as I was researching this case, I soon realized exactly what the Larrabee Project is. And no, cowboys are not the main subject, at least not in the sense I was thinking at all. You see, it is the very true story of Matthew Shepard and how the town of Laramie, Wyoming, and its residents responded to his heinous killing. And this is Matthew's story. Matthew was born on December 1st, 1976. He was raised by his parents, Dennis and Judy Shepard, in Casper, Wyoming. He attended public school in Casper until his junior year of high school when he moved with his parents to Saudi Arabia. I know, what? (laughs) Saudi Arabia? But yes, the Shepards moved there because, according to BBC News, Dennis got a job as an oil rig inspector overseas. While there, though, Matthew ended up completing high school at the American school in Switzerland because there were no American schools in Saudi Arabia at the time. 
So by the time Matthew graduated high school, he had already been exposed to world traveling and he spoke three different languages, which helped shape him as a person. By the time he was 21, he was looking to settle down in one place and pursue his dreams of becoming a human rights activist. So one of his friends from back home in Wyoming suggested he start attending the University of Wyoming right there in Laramie, where he could work on himself and his aspirations. So that's exactly what he did. He moved back to Laramie, enrolled in college, began majoring in political science, and also studying foreign relations and languages. According to those closest to him, he appeared to be thriving in his new environment. Everyone around him said he was enjoying his time. He was spreading his wings and really trying to make an impact both on the campus and in the town of Laramie. Part of that impact included planning an LGBT Awareness Week on campus. On Tuesday, October 6, 1998, Matthew met up with friends to plan events for the LGBT Awareness Week. After the meeting, he asked them to join him for a beer at a local bar. But when he couldn't persuade them to go, the openly gay college student decided to go by himself to the Fireside Lounge, which was at the time a gay-friendly bar in Laramie. While there, he ended up chatting with two roofing workers. Russell Henderson and Aaron McKinney, who also were both 21 at the time, the same age as Matthew. Then, at some point during the night, Henderson and McKinney went to the bathroom and began coming up with a scheme to rob Matthew. BBC News suggests that Matthew's small frame, with him being only 5 feet 2 inches tall, made him an easy, vulnerable target. So, their plan, according to Henderson and McKinney's statements to police, was to pretend that they were gay in order to gain Matthew's trust because they wanted to teach him a lesson not to hit on straight men. Then they would lure him into McKinney's pickup truck so they could also carry out a plan to rob him. Albany County Sheriff Dave O'Malley, who was the lead investigator in the case, said he believes the fact that Matthew was gay was a motive from the very beginning, from the moment McKinney and Henderson began talking to Matthew and realized he was a gay man. O'Malley said, quote, and so the sexual orientation issue started right at the beginning of that contact, end quote. At some point during the night, McKinney's and Henderson's so-called plan or whatever worked, and the three men loaded up into McKinney's truck, all in the front seat. Henderson took the wheel as Matthew and McKinney slid in on the passenger side. Apparently, once inside the vehicle, Matthew put his hand either on McKinney's leg or toward his crotch, and McKinney went ape shit. So much so that McKinney ended up pulling out a gun and he beat Matthew repeatedly with it. Apparently, McKinney told police that when Matthew made a move on him, McKinney said, quote, Guess what? We're not gay and we're going to jack you up. End quote. McKinney also forced Matthew to give him the money from his wallet, which had only $20 or $30 inside. Sources vary on the exact amount, but not much at all. And McKinney continued to beat Matthew with the gun while they were still inside the truck. McKinney instructed Henderson to drive to a secluded area, about a mile or so outside of town, down a dirt path that ended in a rocky prairie full of sagebrush and range grass. They stopped at a wooden buck fence and pulled Matthew from the truck. McKinney told Henderson to get a rope from the truck and tie Matthew to the fence while McKinney continued to pistol whip him. 
Sheriff O'Malley told BBC News that Matthew was, quote, struck in the head and face between 19 and 21 times with the butt of a very large Smith & Wesson revolver, end quote. ABC News reported that it was a 357 Magnum revolver, to be exact. Sheriff O'Malley went on to say, quote, The only time I've ever seen those dramatic of injuries were in high-speed traffic crashes. You know, where there was just extremely violent compression fractures to the school, end quote. During the violent attack, and after he had tied Matthew to the fence, Henderson retreated back to the truck, but McKinney stayed with Matthew and continued to beat him with the gun. McKinney later told ABC News that he thinks those last blows he dealt Matthew at the fence were the fatal ones. McKinney then took Matthew's wallet and his shoes, for some reason, before he loaded back up into the truck and told Henderson to drive to town, leaving Matthew alone, tied to the fence, to die in extremely cold temperatures. The next day, when the teen riding his mountain bike discovered Matthew, he was in complete shock and horror. He said he didn't know what to think at first. I mean, there was no way it could be an actual human. He said he was in disbelief. That he noticed Matthew's chest moving up and down, and he still thought it must be a dummy, a Halloween prank. But, he said, he quickly realized it was not a dummy at all. The teen said, quote, But when I saw hair, his hair, I knew it was a human being. I ran to the nearest house. I ran as fast as I could and called police. End quote. The first to respond to the scene was police officer Reggie Flutie. When she arrived, she explained to BBC News what she found. She said, quote, Matt was on his back with his arms behind him. His respirations were far and few between. And I thought he was way younger than he was just because his stature was so small. End quote. Flutie later told The Guardian in an interview, quote, I seen what appeared to be a young man, 13, 14 years old, because he was so tiny, laying on his back, and he was tied to the bottom end of a pole, end quote. Regardless, Flutie sprung into action. She said the rope was tied extremely tight, and she had a hard time getting a knife through an opening to actually cut it off his hands and the pole. So, she rolled Matthew onto his left side, but when she did that, he stopped breathing completely, so she immediately positioned him onto his back again, eventually finding enough leverage to cut him free from the rope. Flutie recalled that she just kept trying to revive him, saying, quote, Baby boy, I'm here, kiddo. You're going to be okay. Hang in there. Don't give up. Come on, you can do this. End quote. She said by the time it was over, her hands were covered in Matthew's blood. And when she first found him, he himself was covered from head to toe in dried blood as well. She said the only place on Matthew's body not covered in blood was where he'd been crying and tears had rolled down his face, leaving clear streaks through the bloodstains. Matthew was taken to a hospital in Colorado where he slipped into a coma and remained that way for several days. His parents, who had rushed to fly in from Saudi Arabia, said they only recognized their son from the dental brace. Judy Shepard told BBC News that Matthew had, quote, bandages and stitches all over his face and bandages around his head where the final blow had crushed his brainstem. His fingers and toes were curled in a comatose position already, tubes everywhere enabling his body to stay alive. One of his eyes was partially open so you could see his blue eyes and the tubes in his mouth. You could see his braces, so of course it's matte. His face was swollen, actually kind of unrecognizable till you got closer, end quote. 
Ultimately, Matthew suffered four skull fractures from the blows of the handgun, in addition to a crushed brainstem and hypothermia from being left out in the cold. After five days of remaining in a coma, Matthew succumbed to his injuries, and he died on October 12, 1998, at a hospital in Fort Collins, Colorado. Meanwhile, police had already been led to both Henderson and McKinney, who both interviewed with police and admitted to the murder, believe it or not. Also, media had gotten wind of the brutal attack, and a narrative of one of the nation's most heinous and brutal hate crimes was underway. In fact, when the arraignment occurred a few days after the attack, residents of Laramie stepped outside of the courtroom to find a sea of media, literally perched in every nook and cranny of the courthouse lawn. When Matthew died a few days later, that narrative had completely swept the entire country. President Bill Clinton stood on the steps of the White House during a vigil to address thousands of people, and he condemned the murderers, saying they were either full of hatred or full of fear or both. Ellen DeGeneres delivered a tearful message and plea at the vigil as well, and Elton John ended up writing a song about the whole incident, later titled American Triangle, where he basically compared the whole thing to a deer chased down by two coyotes, according to BBC News. Also, according to a 2014 article in The Guardian, Elton John also sent flowers to Matthew's funeral. And Barbara Streisand called the Albany County Sheriff's Office to demand quick action on the case. And Madonna even called the assistant to the University of Wyoming president to complain about the circumstances. So clearly, as you can see, all of these celebrities were also getting involved and like basically jumping on the movement. The concept that Wyoming was in the middle of cowboy country and that it was a danger to gay people because it was full of homophobic rednecks was basically the message that quickly spread across the U.S. And Matthew and his story, of course, essentially became a poster child for gay rights and policies and legislation especially after a New York theater group traveled to Laramie and interviewed hundreds of town residents about the murder and their response to it. The result was a theater documentary, The Laramie Project, which I have mentioned earlier, whose script came verbatim from transcripts with over 200 interviews with residents of Laramie, Wyoming. According to the Matthew Shepard Foundation, The Laramie Project is one of the most frequently performed plays in America. At Matthew's funeral on October 16, 1998, the nation was in an outrage and there was so much media attention and controversy surrounding Matthew's murder that police made Matthew's father, Dennis Shepard, wear a bulletproof vest to deliver his own son's eulogy. Also in attendance at Matthew's funeral were at least a thousand members of the Westboro Baptist Church. If you're not familiar with what that is, it's a Topeka, Kansas-based organization an anti-gay hate group that wretchedly calls itself a church, which is led by Fred Phelps, who's also the founder of a website called godhatesfags.com. Also, I hate that word, (laughs) and I will not be using it for the rest of this. I only said it there to tell you what the website was um, and for context purposes, but I will not be saying that word at all throughout the rest of this episode. Anyway, BBC News reported that the members of the group Westboro Baptist Church, held placards and signs with homophobic slurs, and they shouted to mourners that Matthew was burning in hell. Just truly awful, inhumane stuff. 
Five months after the murder, Russell Henderson was the first to go to trial, but before he could go to an actual jury trial, he changed his plea of not guilty to guilty of felony murder and kidnapping so he could avoid the death penalty, well, in hopes of avoiding the death penalty. This, of course, led to a bench trial instead, and at that trial, Henderson addressed Matthew's parents. He said, quote, Mr. and Mrs. Shepard, there is not a moment that goes by that I don't see what happened that night. I know what I did was very wrong, and I regret greatly what I did. You have my greatest sympathies for what happened. I hope that one day you will be able to find it in your hearts to forgive me, end quote. But the judge wasn't buying any of it. The judge responded to him by saying, quote, Mr. Henderson, this court does not believe that you really feel any true remorse for your part in this matter. And I wonder whether you fully realize the gravity of what you have done. You drove the vehicle that took Matthew Shepard to his death. You bound him to that fence in order that he might be more savagely beaten and in order that he might not escape to tell his tale. You left him out there for 18 hours, perhaps having an opportunity to save his life, and you did nothing, end quote. ABC News reported that, ultimately, the judge handed Henderson two consecutive life terms in prison. But guess who showed back up to pick it at the trial? Yep, members of the Westboro Baptist Church, again with their hateful signs and angry homophobic slurs. But this time, Matthew's friends and supporters were prepared to steal the limelight away from the awful picketers. Using white sheets and duct tape and PVC pipes, they dressed up as angels and stood in front of Phelps and his congregants, their angel wings sticking so far up that they blocked the signs and the assholes holding them. This was a critical moment that was specifically reenacted in the Laramie Project. One man who participated in the event dubbed the Angel Action, Jim Osborne, said, quote, We had this idea for big-ass angel wings that would block out the signs, end quote. Osborne, at the time of Matthew's death, was the chair of the University of Wyoming's LGBT Association, and he was a friend of Matthew's. Oh, and just as a side note, that same angel action was replicated in 2016 in Orlando, Florida, when Westboro Baptist Church, again with their angry, hateful, whatever they are, showed up to try and disrupt the funerals of the gay people who were killed in the Pulse nightclub mass shooting. So let's move on to Aaron McKinney's trial, which started about a year after the murder. And remember the gay panic defense I mentioned in the last episode with Isamim and Atute? Just to recap, it's a defense used as a way for a person accused of murder to receive a lesser sentence by basically saying they panicked after finding out the victim's sexual orientation or their gender identity. Etute, in that episode, ended up not using that defense, but McKinney attempted to milk it for all it's worth. At least until the judge ultimately decided he couldn't use it. According to an Associated Press article, State District Judge Barton Voigt at the time told McKinney's defense team that it was basically the same thing as using a temporary insanity defense or a diminished capacity defense, both of which were prohibited under Wyoming law. The judge also said he didn't believe McKinney's attorneys had provided any evidence that a gay panic strategy would be relevant. The judge said, quote, even if relevant, the evidence will mislead and confuse the jury. End quote. So instead of leaning on the gay panic defense, McKinney's team delivered an opening statement to the jury saying the crime was ultimately the result of a combination of drug and alcohol use, 
traumatic homosexual experiences from when he was younger, and an unwanted sexual advance by Matthew Shepard. Regardless, though, the defense did not work, and the jury found McKinney guilty on all counts. First-degree murder, kidnapping, and aggravated robbery. According to ABC News, before the jury was about to decide his sentence, McKinney also reached a deal that allowed him to avoid a possible death penalty. The Washington Post reported at the time that it was an unexpected agreement that resulted from a request by McKinney's attorneys to meet with Dennis and Judy Shepard. That request was for the Shepherds to spare Aaron McKinney's life. Ultimately, the Washington Post reported, Judy Shepard agreed to the request because she had become a human rights activist in the months since her son's passing, and she believed it was the right thing to do. Bless her heart is literally all I can say, because I can't imagine how hard of a decision that must have been for her. Anyway, the sentencing agreement barred any appeal by McKinney and guaranteed that he would, and does, remain in prison for the remainder of his life. The judge sentenced McKinney, as well, to two life sentences in prison. But not before Matthew's father read a lengthy, heart-wrenching statement to McKinney in the courtroom. I'd like to read that statement to you now, but fair warning, it is pretty long, so bear with me. But Dennis Shepard told McKinney, quote, My son Matthew did not look like a winner. He was rather uncoordinated and wore braces from the age of 13 until the day he died. However, in his all-too-brief life, he proved that he was a winner. On October 6, 1998, my son tried to show the world that he could win again. On October 12, 1998, my firstborn son and my hero lost. On October 12, 1998, my firstborn son and my hero died, 50 days before his 22nd birthday. I keep wondering the same thing that I did when I first saw him in the hospital. What would he have become? How could he have changed his piece of the world to make it better? Matt officially died in a hospital in Fort Collins, Colorado. He actually died on the outskirts of Laramie, tied to a fence. You, Mr. McKinney, with your friend, Mr. Henderson, left him there by himself. But he was not alone. There were his lifelong friends with him, friends that he had grown up with. You're probably wondering who these friends were. First, he had the beautiful night sky and the same stars and moon we used to see through a telescope. Then he had the daylight and the sun to shine on him. And through it all, he was breathing in the scent of the pine trees from the snowy range. He heard the wind, the ever-present Wyoming wind, for the last time. He had one more friend with him. He had God. And I feel better knowing he wasn't alone. Matt's beating, hospitalization, and funeral focused worldwide attention on hate. Good is coming out of evil. People have said, enough is enough. I miss my son, but I'm proud to be able to say that he was my son. Judy has been quoted as being against the death penalty. It has been stated that Matt was against the death penalty. Both of these statements are wrong. I, too, believe in the death penalty. I would like nothing better than to see you die, Mr. McKinney. However, this is the time to begin the healing process. To show mercy to someone who refused to show any mercy. Mr. McKinney, I am going to grant you life, as hard as it is to do so, because of Matthew. Every time you celebrate Christmas, a birthday, the 4th of July, remember that Matthew isn't. Every time that you wake up in that prison cell, remember you have the opportunity and the ability to stop your actions that night. 
You robbed me of something very precious, and I will never forgive you for that. Mr. McKinney, I give you life in the memory of someone who no longer lives. May you have a long life, and may you thank Matthew every day for it. End quote. Since the death of their son, Judy and Dennis Shepard have started the Matthew Shepard Foundation. According to the foundation's website, matthewshepard.org, its mission is to, quote, amplify the story of Matthew Shepard to inspire individuals, organizations, and communities to embrace the dignity and equality of all people. Through local, regional, and national outreach, we empower individuals to find their voice to create change and challenge communities to identify and address hate that lives within our schools, neighborhoods, and homes. Our work is an extension of Matt's passion to foster a more caring and just world. We share his story and embody his vigor for civil rights to change the hearts and minds of others to accept everyone as they are, end quote. Also, through their advocacy work for LGBTQ rights, the Shepherds were invited to the White House in 2009 when President Barack Obama officially signed into law the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act. James Byrd, a black man, also was murdered in a truly dreadful hate crime in Texas in 1998 when he was dragged behind a pickup truck by three white supremacists. Also, the University of Wyoming remembers Matthew with a public memorial, the state's only public memorial of Matthew Shepard. It's a bench dedicated in his memory, which now sits in the middle of campus where students can gather and sit between classes. Okay, y'all, so this story is about to take a significantly sharp turn, or maybe I should say detour, (laughs) but what if I told you that some have speculated whether or not what I just told you was the full picture of exactly what happened and exactly why Matthew Shepard was murdered. In other words, at least part of the story could be a false narrative. Not about who murdered Matthew, that was never in question, but it's more about why they killed him. Now, I'm not one for conspiracy theories, but I am one for facts. And as I was researching this case, I just kept thinking, there has got to be more to the story than just this. Like, something just didn't sound right. Or more like, I felt like a big piece of the puzzle was missing. Because, let's face it, being that angry towards someone just because of their sexuality is not normal. Now, I'm not saying it couldn't or doesn't or hasn't happen. I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying that part of this story, the motive, just doesn't add up, especially for it to be such a heinous crime. I mean, if you were that homophobic, wouldn't you just avoid the person at all costs instead of literally placing yourself inside of a pickup truck with them? I mean, don't you have better things to do than teach someone a lesson about hitting on straight people? So... I'm going to dive into a theory that might help explain more of the motive. And that, my fellow campus cronies, will be what I cover in part two of this episode, in part two of Chronicle 34. But don't worry, (laughs) you won't have to wait two whole weeks to hear the rest of the story. I'll be dropping part two of Chronicle 34 next week, next Monday. So until then, bye for now. Campus Crime Chronicles is researched, written, and recorded by me, Nicole Turner, and it's edited and produced by Giari Gassaway. 
The cover art and logos for this podcast were designed by Brady Burns. Tune in again in two weeks for the next Chronicle.